A radical energy transition is underway, driven by a combination of environmental, political and technological factors. We are seeing a global shift from the use of fossil fuels like oil and coal to low carbon energies like wind, solar, lithium mine batteries. The effects of the shift will be far reaching and transformational. To discuss this transition, on today's podcast, we're joined by Dr. Steve Nell, Head of Power and Renewables Consulting at Wood Mackenzie, and Wisdom Tree's very own Annika Gupta, Director of Macroeconomic Research. Welcome to the Commodity Exchange, a podcast where we bring you insights from the world of commodities. Whether you're an investor or just want to learn more about the topic, this is the podcast for you. Before we begin, I do need to state the following. To clarify, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Wood Mackenzie and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor investment or tax advice. The investment, sorry, the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation offer or solicitation to buy or sell securities and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. So, welcome Steve. Before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Wood Mackenzie for the benefit of our viewers unfamiliar with your firm. Nitesh, Annika, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, well, let me start with, uh, with Woodmac. Um, so the company is now 100 years old and was originally a stock brokerage in, uh, in Edinburgh. But about 50 years or so ago, uh, the company's more modern um, um, arrangement and orientation was, uh, was established as part of the, the market's need for better asset valuation in the face of the, the North Sea oil boom. So a couple of the traits that Woodmac is so well known for in the market, first, our expertise in the um, energy and natural resource space, but also our unique approach, which is valuation and focusing very much on the, uh, the appropriate price tag for certain types of assets in the energy sector were established. And over time, that set the tone for the growth of the business, which is global in nature. We've got hundreds of researchers and consultants working around the world across different energy and natural resource value chains in our research subscription products, but also uh, be more bespoke solutions uh, uh, providers uh, such as yours truly, uh, who work with clients to uh, to support different types of transactions um, on the buy and the sell side, um, in the formulation of energy transition strategies and the management of emissions, as well as market entry and uh, the growth of their portfolios. And uh, you know that captures a great deal of my own professional expertise, that role that I serve. So I've been in the industry for more than 20 years now, started as a kind of academic and public sector regulatory and reputational risk specialist, but I've had the pleasure of working in carbon, um, in scenarios, um, in and around the formulation of the goals of the Paris Agreement and the pursuit of net zero. Uh, as well as corporate responses and uh, financial capital allocations in keeping with their end. So I have the pleasure of managing a day-to-day -day team of consultants, but also support Woodmac's broader work in, uh, in the pursuit of transforming the way we power the planet, which is our corporate mission and one that we all take very seriously. Wow, that's quite a strong background. I'm so glad uh, to bring you uh, to our audience. Um, and I think most of our audience has heard from Annika before, but for those of you who have not, Annika, why didn't uh, you give a quick introduction for yourself? Thanks so much, Nitesh. It's a pleasure uh, to uh, host Steve uh, today on our on our podcast. Um, you know, my, I've been working uh, in the financial industry for the past 17 years, and uh, a large part of those 17 years, uh, nearly eight, coming up to eight years, I've had the privilege of working at Wisdom Tree, uh, covering equity and commodities research. Um, I started out at Bear Stearns uh, uh, as an equity analyst, and that, uh, you know, uh, took me across various roles in research and equity trading, 
um, and these last eight years have been very enriching, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, you know, to to uh, hear from Steve uh, and Navesh on our views on the energy transition. Excellent. So, um, Steve, if we uh, reflect on twenty twenty three, what are your biggest takeaways uh, related to the energy transition? Yeah. Well, I I can't sugarcoat it. Nitesh, there was a 2023 was a tough year, and there's a there's a couple different markers that I think it's worth the um, the audience reflecting upon. So, you know, first and foremost, in terms of um, temperatures, you know, one of the features of what the energy transition is about is um, managing the flow of emissions um, that contribute to uh, build up or stock of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, with corresponding increases in uh, surface temperatures around the world. And on average, you know, we broke the 1.5 degree um, reference point, which has been established by the science of climate change as uh, the best chance we have to avoid some of the worst of what global warming promises for some communities around the world. And, you know, we saw that on average around the world last year. So that idea of the 1.5 threshold being broken is something that 2023 will be remembered for. I think the broader macroeconomic picture disproportionately impacted renewables and um, energy transition value chains. There's a couple of different reasons we can uh, get into as to why that was the case, but it's everything from the, uh, the nature of renewable project finance and reliance upon uh, certain types of credit conditions uh, to some of the longer money coming out of the renewables market and uh, uh, a bit of a wait and see attitude to the promise of better returns in some um, more, let's say more emissions intense um, corners of the commodity complex. So some of the money that had been in the energy transition moved out and um, that and the lack of capital meant that both kind of primary project origination as well as secondary deal activity really stalled last year. And um, uh, it had a, a major effect on confidence in the sector. I think another point of confidence was the way in which we saw a degree of supply overhang emerge in some commodity markets. I'd like to get into that with you and Annika throughout the course of our discussion today, because short-term uh, oversupply has disproportionately impacted price formation and the value of some equities in a way, which again, 2023 will be a year for many publicly listed energy transition companies to, to forget. But then, you know, I think about one of the things that for me was a real positive was being at COP28 and the experience of uh, the international community um, coming together, bringing together all stakeholders for the first time. So that's corporates and financiers, as well as the, the sovereigns and public sector authorities um, that the UN climate talks are normally dominated by to think about more aggressive ambition. So although 2023 was, you know, definitely one where some of the markers were um, tough, and you might say that as we have in some of our research, that that's the year that the European renewable bubble burst or, you know, the temperature thresholds begin to speak of a different kind of climate change. There's also grounds for optimism. So, so Steve, based, I mean, what I'm gathering from your conversation is uh, even though you think 2023 was a tough year for energy transition investments, you still remain quite optimistic on, uh, you know, the policy initiatives for 2024. I certainly do. So I think that that's, you know, a degree of momentum. Uh, it's not just the sons of Dubai that I still, it's, I don't have the tan that I picked up down there, but, you know, certainly the optimism that I've carried through the first quarter, seeing some of the deal activity that took place against the backdrop of the COP, but, you know, something along the lines of trying to triple the level of installed renewable generation, which is one of the commitments that the that the parties made at Dubai. You know, when we take a step back from this short-term macroeconomic malaise or some of the shifting priorities, like there's no doubt that again, 2023 saw energy security and energy affordability begin to challenge the sustainability side of the traditional European energy trilemma. If we take a, a step back and say, well, what, what are the means by which we will be able to realize this transition? Actually, you know, 2023 and the, and the regulatory uh, interventions in energy and commodity markets that we see today create a very strong foundation for expectations around where this transition is going to take us. It would be, 
you know, overly optimistic to say that the best temperature outcomes remain within our reach. I think we have to be quite honest about that. But at the same time, the idea that that the global community can triple the level of installed generation that we can, you know, begin to pursue essentially unprecedented levels of installed capacity, um, you know, something like 11,000 gigawatts sought by by 2030, you know, tripling from where we are today, that is a really bold ambition that will create opportunities for wind and solar storage, um, geothermal, small run, run of the river hydro, like a range of different technologies associated with this transition. So at a global level, I'm extremely optimistic. At the same time, you know, there's no getting away from the commitments that local authorities have made both on the renewable side of the story, which again, I think, you know, that Europe needs something like 600 plus gigawatts of low carbon capacity to be added by 2030 to be in keeping with the repower EU, some of the targets that it's set for itself. That is a really good, strong, renewable foundation, as it were, for this transition. And I think, you know, if the, if the transition is about creating more energy for more people with a lower emissions uh, outcome, then the further deployment of renewables is going to be absolutely critical. But at the same time, there, the electrification of different end use segments of the global economy will be paramount if we're going to continue to displace emissions from where traditional fossil fuel markets uh, have dominated. So that's a story about mobility, Annika. Like that's one where thinking about the way in which we move goods and people around the world um, needs to come into focus because there's a huge amount of emissions uh, that are embedded in set. So here, regulators in the large automotive markets, let's just say the US, the EU and China, China being the largest automotive market now today, have, have doubled down on their commitments towards supply diversification and frankly have continued to offer, you know, through emission standards, which we see in the US or the EU or indeed China, but also dedicated forms of physical incentivization for consumers to make an electric vehicle the next best choice that they uh, pursue for their families. There's a range of tax credits that continue to support really, I think, strong expectations of where EVs and battery technologies to support electric vehicles will go. Like, there were some mixed signals, like some of the sales fell off in the US and European Union last year for electric vehicles. Again, I, I think let's be really honest about that. That's one of the reasons why we've seen some valuations around commodities or certain equities. But the softness in those two markets was certainly more than compensated for in what we saw in China, which, you know, again, we're of, of, of kind of an unprecedented nature. China EV sales um, in the third quarter of last year were up 17% year on year. You know, we are trending towards, and Woodmac expects electric vehicles to make up 35% of new vehicle sales by 2030. And those dedicated forms of policy support and improved economics for EV mobility, that's basically going to drive us towards that outcome. So Steve, if you, if you could, um, you know, give our viewers just a chance to understand you know the role of strategic metals and rare earth minerals within the energy transition like why is it important and what are the long-term growth drivers very good so i think the pursuit if we if we take as given the pursuit of a net zero world like that we have the regulatory foundation and the commitment of all the the international community to realize that and whatever the uh, the kind of opinion about the uh, adequacy of the policy support which again i think is robust it could go still further um, those corporate commitments to net zero which stand very much aligned with the uh, the broader political commitment which i mentioned in dubai and which we've seen in some of these regulatory interventions in power and transport you know there's this generalized orientation towards where we want to go. Now, the means by which we're going to get there are often unheralded. And as somebody who spent many, many years working in po climate policy formulation, as I have, I'm struck by how little I appreciated what it was actually going to take to deliver on some of the changes that were promised. Sure. And so working quite closely with, you know, the, the team at Wisdom Tree, as well as my colleagues in our metals and 
mining research teams have a much deeper appreciation for where specific types of um, inputs, commodities and metals are required now. And yeah, let me just say a couple of words about some of the things that, that really stand out for me. So um, on the one hand, let's, let's take the question of rare earth elements first, because I think this, this is a really fascinating space and one that's often unheralded. So you've got this group of 17 metals that have these really unique chemical or physical properties. Um, it could be magnetism, it could be luminescence. Um, a friend of mine says that rare earth elements make computers smarter. Not, not, not a bad way to understand the overall kind of efficiency improvements that are called for, but the application particularly around um, some of what um, we need in terms of the magnets to improve performance of the motors in electric vehicles and in wind farms give rare earth elements like a front seat at the more optimistic reading of where the transition will go. Indeed, you know, one can make an argument that you need more rare earth elements to realize the potential of these technologies, lower cost, reliability, in order to furnish the energy transition with the best possible commercial opportunity for consumers. Because I think that that's one thing that's really come to the fore. It's this transition has to be affordable. The last 12 to 18 months have certainly uh, given us reason to not be um, too obtuse about the importance of said. So the rare earth element piece kind of fits on top and alongside the contributions that a range of other commodities will make. So let's just consider a few of them because indeed it, it was for me a very important educational piece about how the transition will fit together. So, so zinc um, as a really interesting contribution to the expectation of the changes that'll take place in how we power um, and create uh, electricity, heat for our communities, as well as mobility. Well, basically we need a great deal of zinc coatings to enhance the durability and safety of the different devices that the transition will rely upon. So that's everything from, you know, essentially um, zinc-based battery technologies as little additives for certain types of applications to zinc-based coatings to improve the durability of a lot of the capacity that I'm transacting. Offshore wind is a, a pretty corrosive environment and we need the kind of uh, application that zinc-based technologies can offer us uh, in order to ensure that essentially the capacity that we're putting out into the field can be as resilient and uh, frankly as um, hard wearing as uh, those environments really warrant. Um, there's a couple really interesting storylines around the use of tin and the use of aluminium, um, broadly speaking, supporting um, the deployment across uh, a range of different subsectors, and that's everything from electric vehicles to um, energy storage and the wind and solar technologies where the expectation that we're going to continue to put more and more generating capacity, if we just think about the wind and solar piece for a second, out into the field. Well, you know, typically the construction of different solar arrays, solar PV considered here or indeed wind, um, it's, it's a structural input to create the opportunity for generation. And as those markets grow, so too will the call for uh, for aluminium, but also, you know, when I was looking into geothermal for a project that we did for a client a, a couple months ago, the heat exchange properties that aluminium represents, you know, certainly here we get to the characteristics of certain types of metals to further what the transition is about, which is the generation and distribution of heat and power. So moving on from that, copper makes a huge amount of sense. And one of the commodities that's uh, often uh, rightly championed as at the forefront of what this transition is about is uh, copper, the, the push. And if I think about what this transition is about, it's about electrification. All scenarios that you may see, 1.5 degrees, two and a half degrees, and everything in between rely upon broader connectivity and the expansion of electricity networks. And the the properties of copper are very well established when it comes to um, the uh, the application. And this, again, can be everything from ribbons connecting uh, different solar arrays through to EV chargers and the way in which we just need very conducive materials um, and, and that copper fits the bill. So, again, you know, there's a broader narrative around the expansion of these sectors, but quite specific characteristics that the metals hold and 
um, frankly, I think that we can expect to see a very, very strong use case uh, for copper throughout um, uh, the, uh, the energy transition, regardless of the manner with which um, it may realize certain temperature objectives. Let me just say a, a quick word in conclusion there, because I think I've given you a lot already on storage. So I think we think about this from two different perspectives. The first is we're building more and more renewable capacity as a feature of this transition into our power systems. Indeed, to my aforementioned remarks, you know, we want to triple the level of installed generating capacity over the course of the next six years. That is going to breed a great deal of volatility in power systems. So the, the, the way in which power systems are able to realize a greater degree of stability or firm capacity will rely upon transmission and distribution infrastructure connecting our networks more generally, and also different types of storage so that power can be, um, as it were, uh, put away um, for times of peak use uh, and also um, distributed over longer and different periods of time. And so that puts more and more emphasis on just how much um, energy storage capability exists either in kind of a large fixed form to support certain kinds of power systems or more mobily because this is ultimately what the electric vehicle value proposition is all about, being able to make sure that all of us are extremely confident as consumers with the level of charge that we have when we're taking our children out for a, a long drive at the weekend or hopping in the car to go visit relatives for a holiday or whatever the use case may be. So for us, that means, well, you're certainly going to see more lead called for in certain types of battery applications, but also cobalt and lithium contributions to storage. I think it's kind of a generalized piece that we need more and more storage uh, in order to support what this energy transition is about. But that is definitely going to be, it's a signal that's already been sent to these commodity markets um, and that the expectation of longer term generalized demand for certain types of commodities to support the storage of energy is a key theme for, um, for this transition as a whole. I'll pause there. I think I've, I've gone on for quite a bit there, Annika, but I, I hope I gave you a bit of a flavor of the way in which we think this transition um, and as it unfolds, even, you know, with the persistent degree of uncertainty is promising more and more call on these commodities really than we've ever seen before. Wow, that does really paint a picture of extremely strong demand for a lot of these commodities. Um, you know, I guess it will be a challenge, I guess, for the suppliers of these commodities to actually provide uh, in, in, enough uh, going forward. I mean, I know at the moment, a lot of metals look like they're in surplus, a few are in, in deficit, but, you know, looking down the, pi the pipe 10 years down the line, it does look like there's going to be a bit of a challenge um, supplying this much material to the markets. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Nitesh, you know, um, uh, in both respects. So the first is, um, and picking up on a, a, the theme that I just kind of trailed there, the demand signal for something like lithium um, which suddenly, you know, there's a there's a market for it today, but it's fairly limited compared to the scale of the growth promised through the advent of more and more net zero commitments, which really, again, you know, when we think about it, the, the discourse of net zero is five years old, right? Like it was the, the UK and Japan in the spring of 2019 really put the first long-term commitments towards net zero by 2050 in place. And then there was a huge wave of corporate as well as um, uh, sovereign action that followed that. But it's not that long. Be that as it may, then you go straight into COVID and then the build back better narrative, which those of you based in the UK, like the three of us um, would be quite familiar with, really brought a very strong degree of stimulation on the supply side of some of those markets. And indeed, like the some of the price formation that we saw in and around lithium markets, short and long-term, you know, spot and kind of thinking out towards the net zero threshold was quite extraordinary. So uh, a huge amount of supply came to market. And one of the things that's interesting about lithium is how quickly you can get different types of lithium to the market quite quickly. And so what we saw was a very abrupt supply reaction to the promise of longer term demand, which I've just laid out across these different subsectors. And as a result, we're dealing with a structural oversupply. And it's going to take a number of years for that to shake out. Uh, indeed, it's going to be at least five years before we see a structural deficit. And that's, you know, the, the level of new demand surpassing the level of new supply because of how much has been worked up. But 
that's the short-term environment. The longer term is one where scarcity governs, as it does in natural resource market valuations more generally. So I think it varies by commodity and metal and also by subsector, but that deficits are to be anticipated in a more generalized sense. What will be fascinating to see is how quickly ideas around recycling really take off. And I think that if there's a, a, a variable for us to monitor here, it's how the reuse and circular economy begins to muscle into our conceptions of longer term supply adequacy for these different commodities, like the demand cases there 100%. And I think a couple uh, good quarters of Chinese EV manufacturing would be more than enough to send say the lithium market into again, another period of um, not so much crisis, but just thinking more broadly about the adequacy of the longer term supply and demand. It got overheated. There should have been better visibility about the adequacy of supply. The prices did not need to go as high as they did. And as we've seen in other commodity cycles before, well, a lot of equities have suffered as a result. And um, um, whether or not it's right or wrong, it is what it is. Um, but I would expect to see both those market balance is tightening up and then the value of the equities that sit upon them uh, heading in uh, uh, an upwards uh, direction over the course of the years to come. Indeed, that may come sooner rather than later in some some markets. So what do you see as the major opportunities uh, for the energy transition value chain uh, going forward then? Well, they're, they're multiple, to be perfectly honest. Um, like, I think we've already touched upon some of them. The importance of electrification as a generalized narrative is sets uh, the tone for a, a myriad of different types of applications. So for us, um, Wood McKenzie's research highlights uh, a great deal of what the wind value chain can offer. If you think about the types of communities that we live within, um, no, no, let's just refer back at the risk of uh, an undue geographic bias to, um, to where we are in the United Kingdom. It's very difficult to foresee a massive build out of onshore wind, but offshore wind as a, and floating wind for that matter, uh, creates a scalable opportunity commensurate with the challenge of climate change. I would say that we can put enough types of wind arrays um, out into um, uh, environments where the generating conditions are opportune, uh, and which um, with uh, a few assumptions, um, a, a great deal of new power can be brought to the people. I say those assumptions, Natasha, because I think one of the things that is a, a problem within the UK context, and you know, when we speak to investors and when we talk you know, to some of the listeners of today's uh, podcast about these opportunities, there's, um, there's a degree of hesitancy. Frankly, you know, I think that that's reasonably well-founded, the, the pace of development permitting um, and, and certain regulatory bottlenecks will need to be addressed if the power that exists, the latent capacity to deliver more power for more people at a lower cost in a more reliable fashion is realized. Like some of what we've seen in the UK over the last 12 months is quite extraordinary where you've got offshore wind being generated but curtailed and not brought into the power system because the power system cannot accommodate it. And at the same time, the balance in that power system is so tight that we're paying record prices. Like that's an issue which frankly needs uh, uh, to be redressed. And um, market reforms in a number of different power systems are anticipated. The problem in 2014 is that this is a really big election year. So if we are to unlock the opportunities of the energy transition, we'll have to get over some of the short-termism and wait and see uh, attitude that pervades in the place where we find ourselves in the election cycle that exists in the European Union, as a range of new parliamentarians will be elected this year in France, Indonesia, key market for the nickel value chain. It would be very interesting to see what the change of leadership brings there and the export orientation and midstream position that the Indonesians have taken up in nickel markets, a dominant consideration of price formation there. But even just, are we going to be able to get the reforms in place to ensure that we can hook up the power that we've already installed? That would be, I don't think that's asking too much, but also to continue to create better opportunities for investors. So in the power sector, that's a generalized thing. We need to reform power markets to enable the capacity to create the value that, uh, that exists today. 
when it comes to mobility, well, frankly, I'm extremely optimistic about the way in which the built environment that I inhabit here in central London has continued to evolve over the course of the last five years to support more electric vehicles. Um, I think that it is a Chinese story in the main over the course of the next five years, and we tend to underappreciate it in many Western markets, but the dominance of China more than offsetting um, some softness in quarterly metrics when it comes to EV sales in the, uh, the US or the EU is, uh, is notable. And that the, that the opportunity around mobility, people are not gonna drive less. Like I grew up in Canada and I wrote a PhD about the history of energy systems. And I can assure you that mobility and the desire for this is here to stay. There's a range of middle-class consumers in emerging markets in, and I think India is probably the best example that I would cite that are now realizing the income effects that allow mobility to be brought more generally as, um, as a consumer sentiment. And those markets are really going to take off. And we haven't even gotten to those wealth effects in Africa, which is another market prospectively where mobility solutions will become uh, a very positive growth story. So when I think about the longer term fundamentals, you know, the big performances around power and, uh, and mobility anchor the macro picture. And then in the subsectors, I think there's a range of well, in some cases, countervailing local tendencies, you know, on the one hand, Europe's market will be dominated by a mix of wind and solar, and um, that wind piece will be on and offshore. And I think that it's, uh, it's quite variable, but the broader cumulative effect of this reorientation and the way that we are rewiring our societies points to, um, again, a more generalized calls on many of the energy transition metals that, uh, that we've spoken of today. Steve, you know, from a geographic perspective, you've mentioned a number of countries and, um, you know, we often find uh, given the, the slower economic backdrop in China, investors have been quite cautious uh, given the property sector woes. Why do you still uh, believe that an allocation to China uh, is essential for investors tapping into the energy transition investment opportunity? Um, well, it's a, it's a great question. I'd, I'd like to say a couple things in response. So, you know, the first is, yes, there is a narrative around China slowing. Um, the For us, um, and some of our latest macroeconomic analysis highlights that, you know, the, the GDP nationally in 2023 was 5.2%. Um, the global economy last year actually had a pretty decent year. Um, some of the narratives, like the remarkable performance of the U.S. economy, Avoid many, but China likewise had a had a decent year, perhaps slightly softer by historical ex, uh, kind of standards and and some expectations. But we're anticipating something like four four point six four point eight percent growth in twenty twenty four. Uh, it's down a little bit. And as you rightly say, I think the real estate sector, it continues to weigh upon macroeconomic performance as well as sentiment. But I'd say that a lot of it is kind of sentiment driven. And when you look at some of the fundamentals, they're really quite encouraging. So for me, when it comes to the energy transition, I look a lot at infrastructure and utility infrastructure in particular. So that associated with power capacity or transmission and distribution. And it had another really strong year last year in China, you know, annualized investment growth of more than 23%. That was up from 19% in 2022. Um, so that's that's quite strong. Um, you could you can make an argument that China has resorted to stimulating the economy through infrastructural spending again. That's a fair that's a fair point, duly noted. But the effect is there for all to see. And actually, when it comes to the call on energy transition. Uh, commodities and metals may actually translate towards a bigger upside than people are appreciating. I take, you know, a lot of heart from the fact that there's been a couple of special treasury bonds announced last year and another one mooted for this year. You know, we're talking about a trillion renminbi, that's like 140 or so billion US dollars. So like not chump change, it's, it's a considerable bond that's being made available. And that that will, again, be made available in a way which creates stimulation in the right segments of the economy from the standpoint of what the energy transition is about is quite heartening. Half of that uh, bond um, went out last year, half will go this year, and they're already talking about another one 
So that China will continue to actively stimulate spending in the economy, um, for me, creates a certain halo effect when it comes to expectations of GDP price formation. I, I, I also think that there's kind of a geopolitical angle, which we've discussed at a couple of different events, which is China needs to be strong um, from a couple different standpoints, uh, domestically, as well as in its, uh, its international positioning. You know, the narrative around decoupling supply chains from China, maybe this is something we could talk a little bit more about when the critical um, mineral space while, uh, while we're together here today. But that idea that European markets for Chinese products or U.S. markets for Chinese products would be kind of receding or curtailing does mean that China needs to both find new avenues and new outlets for products. And it's done so um, being closer to Russia as one example to, to good effect, but also, you know, needs to be strong from the standpoint of positioning itself vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, prospective changes in the executive in the United States and, you know, the, the geopolitical landscape within which we talk about the energy transition is moving from more of a unipolar, quite uh, consensual international order like we saw at the time of Paris in 2015 to much more multipolar with different interpretations about what this transition means as a way to further industrial plans or national industrial and national economic um, interest. And so I think there's going to be uh, some uh, some grounds for China to continue to strengthen itself as it anticipates the need to be competitive internationally and to secure markets, trade routes and trade partners. So that all points to me to uh, persistent stimulation um, in the automotive sector. We touched upon the importance of some of the uh, tax credits and, uh, you know, China's got some of the most aggressive emission standards in the world that anchors expectations of those battery raw material value chains. You know, sales may be a little softer, um, but and not quite the double digit growth that saw China become the largest car market in the world, but it's still the largest car market in the world and car parks turn over. Um, that's a generalized rule that history teaches us. So my expectations of increased demand for mobility in China, marching along with, you know, a stronger economy, that's very much part of our outlook. Yeah, I think uh, that accords with a lot we see in our sort of commodity outlook as well, that China is prioritizing certain industries and propelling um, what essentially energy transition industries through uh, elevated uh, grid expenditure, um, providing the right tax credits for electric vehicles and uh, battery deployment. So, um, you know, while the, the macro headlines don't look that encouraging, when you look beyond the detail and look at the actual uh, fundamentals, it does look quite strong for a lot of these commodities. So um, yeah, glad that we're we're seeing the, the 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 picture from the sort of same angle there. Yeah, and Nitesh, one thing that it's it's worth saying because you mentioned the point about opportunities, and let me just kind of say a further word there. Like, there's a lot of bottlenecks that exist in the value chains for these different commodities. Um, concentrated uh, extraction sites are one thing, but if I look back historically, and I think about the renewables industry, so let me just kind of wax a little bit historical and lyrical here for a moment. It was very much a European industry. 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, the leading OEMs, when we talked about what was happening in the renewable economy, they were European. And then the financial crisis came along and Europe really doubled down on its financial services industry in terms of like where we were targeting support and stimulation and capital allocations. And what China did was build out its renewable and um, commodity value chains. So, you know, the massive investments and, in, you know, it's, you get different uh, estimates of just how much China spent, but we're talking about hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, to establish the value chains, which really anchor the energy transition today. So that's everything from the, the battery storage units that, um, that provide more reliable um, uh, sources of, uh, of electricity, um, to solar panels that are used to generate them. And, um, you know, the establishment of those value chains have a very strong kind of consumer kind of or end user 
um, manifestation, we can see like, here's my solar panel that's delivered from, from a Chinese manufacturer or OEM. But what we fail to appreciate is the extent to which like the midstream and processing infrastructure for a lot of the commodities that go into those end use technologies is again, a Chinese story. And the preponderance of concentration, it varies by commodity, but it's like more, we're talking about more than 50% pretty much across the board and in some cases as much as 90 percent of our processing capabilities um you know if you want to uh if you want to get some graphite for example you know you basically um you know you, you don't have too many places to go outside of china and like various um everything from you know, if we think about the battery midstream, uh, and it's something we're going to be sharing with uh, uh, clients who are attending Wisdom Trees um, uh, conference in London next week, you know, lithium ion cells, cathodes, precursors, and different, you know, nanotechnology, they're all more than 70, 75% based in the Chinese midstream sector. So the opportunity that exists is for supply diversification. Like this remains one of the reasons why we're optimistic about Chinese uh, industrial performance because of the call for these materials in a global sense and the fact that there's in the short term very little that can be done uh, to move away from those value chains. But also it's worth commenting on the fact that in the United States and, uh, and Europe, in particular, but not exclusively, there's been a narrative around kind of onshoring some of that midstream capacity and bringing the production of certain types of, again, end use consumer facing uh, technologies back, you know, it's called onshoring because we think we used to build those things and in a small scale and in some respects we did, but it's establishing a much more diverse value chain to support the energy transition. Um, there's, there's positives and negatives to be taken away from this. Like on the one hand, it will create opportunities for those equities that are outside of China that are looking at the midstream and processing space as an opportunity to deliver value to their shareholders. And um, I think that's to be welcomed. Um, but there's no doubt that it will take a little bit of time to replicate the value chains that China has established. You could even argue that it's, you know, the better part of 25 years of globalization that give China the cost advantages and the opportunity to knock, say, 50% off the price of a solar PV uh, module, which is what they did over the course of the last kind of 12 to 18 months since the Inflation Reduction Act was established in the United States as, as, as kind of a representation of this push towards onshoring and, and securing a better supply chain for American consumers. So, you know, one of the things we need to be very mindful of is there are benefits and, and kind of energy security dividends to be had from bringing these supply chains back into our markets or establishing them on, in our markets for the first time. The problem is that they likely come at a higher cost um, than the Chinese alternative, and they are likely to take some time to deliver their full capacity. Um, and that, again, can slow down the transition. So an energy transition that costs more and takes longer to displace emissions raises a few uh, red flags, uh, as it were. And I think that it will be uh, an important variable for politicians, you know, those that are going through this electoral cycle, those that may be coming into the office for the first time, to think about. Um, because frankly, the climate emergency warrants the best possible response we can muster. And that's like the lowest cost in the biggest scale as fast as possible. And the, I think that the, we're really interested in those solutions that, you know, for us, globalization and China's contribution to value chains is a source of value. Um, it affords us the chance to create the best possible supply side response to the demand for lower carbon technologies that we can possibly muster as a global community, as an international economy. And that more integrated approach, I know it's fallen a little bit out of fashion uh, in the face of some of uh, the economic nationalism that defies that more multipolar world that I alluded to earlier. But we still think, you know, and a member of my team, Rory McCarthy, wrote a, a paper that I'd be happy to distribute, uh, you know, uh, after uh, this, uh, this podcast um, to any uh, listeners that may be interested called Not Made in China. And it basically highlights the fact that if you want to get to some of the targets that we've set for ourselves, 2030, 2050, you better be prepared to pay a great deal more. And that's like as much as 7 trillion 
just for wind and solar value chains to 2050 if we try to do it without the contribution that Chinese value chains offer. So we frankly think that that's a price that probably isn't worth paying and that most electorates would push back against. And ultimately, if this transition is supposed is to be successful, we need to keep the communities that are paying for it, that are experiencing these changes on board. You know, we need the average voter in the UK or the United States to feel very much um, that their concerns are reflected. And in the cost of living crisis that we've been experiencing, higher cost doesn't resonate the same way as lower cost does. True. I think I I could go on, but I think I should, I I think I'll leave it there. No, I think that's a great point. And I'm sure investors would be very interested to, uh, you know, read that report because uh, we often do hear a lot of, um, uh, you know, skepticism on investing in China. So I think that would allay a lot of investors' concerns. But I wanted to, uh, you know, bring the the discussion back to the miners, the miners that are geared towards the energy transition. You know, we're almost halfway through the earnings season for Q4 of 2023. And we've been, you know, getting a stream of earnings results which haven't been all that optimistic for the miners. Why do you see opportunity for the the miners that are actually geared towards the energy transition well i think there's i think there's a couple things that are worth stating here so the first is the nature of valuations in the mining sector you know through different cycles in the past we've seen what we're seeing now as you rightly uh cite um uh, a, a, a situation in which Commodity prices weigh extremely heavily upon the value of certain equities in the extraction segment. So like the correlation certainly surpasses anything that I've seen in other parts of the energy or uh, value chain that I've worked within before, um, oil and gas or power for, for that matter. So that we have this very tight correlation between commodity prices and our expectations or the, the implied book value of a business is... is a given. And with where some of those commodity prices are, alluding to the oversupply situation, which persists in, you know, let's be uh, pretty frank here, the majority of the metals that we're talking about are facing some pretty substantial short-term oversupplies, given the way in which uh, supply response surpassed demand over the course of the last couple years and indeed how quickly some of that supply particularly in the case of lithium as i alluded to have been able to come to market so you've got a lot of short-term spot kind of valuation framing the implied um standing of these equities and i think that it's I don't think it's a fair representation at the risk of sounding a bit Pollyanna-ish. When we look at the the book of business, it's not just about that short-term cash flow. Like enterprise value is so much broader. And when I see the way the market is pricing in the the equities that we see very well positioned in terms of their technology, the geographies that they're in, um, the potential exposure to different subsector growth, we see a real um, real discontinuity there. So that the market has a way of kind of pricing miners is established. And, you know, what we would say is count, there's, there's merits to um, counter cyclical investment strategies that essentially uh, now is a very good time to be getting in so that you're able to benefit from the upturn, which is anticipated. That longer term scarcity, which um, you know, we explored a little bit earlier on, could come about rather faster than some of the stocks imply, particularly when you're talking about the stimulation of the Chinese economy, which has a way of um, absorbing surplus at at considerable scale so that that the market is currently pricing those equities in a way which reflects uh, perception of fundamentals is fair uh, but also we would see grounds to be extremely um, um, confident about the tightening of the balance in some of those metals that subsector demand activity is being driven by persistent policy stimulation and an improving macroeconomic environment. And the story then is, well, if you want to benefit from the upturn and from, you know, it's a peaky cycle, it's not for everybody's uh, risk appetite, but you run the risk of forfeiting returns if you, um, 
continue to adopt a, a wait and see attitude. And, you know, for us, the macro picture and what that means for vehicles looks pretty robust in 2024. As I alluded to, I think that some of the power sector, like dedicated renewables funds, are going to perhaps take a little bit longer. I may be proved wrong in that respect, but I'm I'm, I'm watching some of the regulatory reforms which need to take place for us to really unlock the power of those renewable technologies. And some of them, frankly, are not on the uh, agenda because of the electoral cycle that we're in. The UK is, provides one example there. But, um, you know, that, that we're seeing this cash flow distortion of value not really reflecting what the book of business actually is, is like, it's a great point to add, Inika, because I, I personally think that... Um, a and we could talk about a lot of those different equities. I'm sure there's members of the community that are listening to the podcast kind of shaking their head going, yeah, like it's not great. I look at our share price on a daily basis and it's not where it should be. And that's the point. It's not where it should be. And that's going to change. Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing your valuable insights with us. Um, I personally have learned a lot and I'm sure we could uh, keep talking about some of these things for hours, um, but uh, maybe we'll leave that for the next uh, podcast uh, recording. Um, Steve, please do tell us, tell our audience uh, where they can read more of your material and follow you. Great. Well, you can find uh, the, my own work and that of my uh, distinguished colleagues at uh, woodmac.com. And um, uh, please feel free to drop me a line on LinkedIn. It's uh, Stephen with a V and now K-N-E-L-L -L at, um, at LinkedIn. And yeah, happy to continue the conversation uh, there. My email is uh, stephen.nell at woodmac.com if uh, any of the listeners have any uh, specific questions about my remarks or would like to follow up directly. Great. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of the Commodity Exchange. If you want to hear more from us at Wisdom Tree, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using, uh, Spotify, YouTube, etc. Um, you can follow me on X, formerly Twitter, with the handle at NiteshaWT. And you can follow Annika on at Annika Gupta WT. And if you want to learn more about commodities, do visit Wisdom Tree's website where we have a wide range of research materials and insights. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.